And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malort. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, June 1st, 2021, and I have my good friend Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. Happy June, Pam. How are you? I'm wonderful. It is June 1st. It's uh, blue skies outside. It looks like it's going to now start warming up. Of course, after our long holiday weekend, it's going to warm up, but at least the sky is beautiful today, and it's great to be talking to you. So I did, uh, great to be talking to you too. I did a little research, and the first day of summer is actually June 20th, not June 21st this year. So it's a little early, and then the last day of summer is actually September 22nd, a day later than normal. So uh, does that mean summer's two days longer than normal? That's what it sounds like. It's our lucky year. I guess. And I love, uh, you know, I love when summer comes, but once you get past that June 20th, the days start getting shorter again, and I don't enjoy that. But uh, no, I know. glad it's here, though. So can you give us a quick update on uh, patient census as it relates to COVID and uh, local statistics? I'm very happy to do that. So as you know, last time we talked, uh, there were 20 patients that were positive and two on vents and two awaiting results. And I'm happy to announce that today there are only nine patients that are positive with one on a vent and one awaiting results. So that's really good news. Our deaths did go up though. We went from 183 to 186. And DuPage County has gone from 90,835 positive patients to 91,860 positive people. Deaths went from 1,373 to 1,389. And the state has gone from a positive 1,370,000 to 1,390,000. And deaths going up from 24,801 to 25,223. And for the positive news, we have uh, gone from discharging 1,793 patients to discharging 1,820 patients, and we remain at a 97% recovery rate. So that's all really good news. Last time we talked, I had asked you about protocol as it relates to visitors in the hospital, and it's it sounds pretty much the same, requires masks. So my question is, if I'm a patient, let's say I'm having my appendix out, I'm not COVID positive, and I'm in my room, in my bed, am I required to wear a mask? No, you're not. So um, what we do ask, though, is sometimes if a nurse is going to be caring for you and she's doing something up close and she she is worried, she may ask you to put on a mask. Or if you're coughing for another reason and she's going to be in the room taking care of you, she may ask you to put on a mask, mask just while she's caring for you, and then you can take her off your mask as soon as she's walked away. That's great. Um so things are progressing a little in that respect, aren't they? Yes. I think it's interesting that not wearing masks is, is becoming more common. Uh, I was up in Wisconsin for the weekend, and many people did not have masks. But it was pretty evident that most people assume everybody else is vaccinated. And um, this one woman was, like, hugging people, and she's, 
like everybody's vaccinated. She went to hug somebody else, and that person said, I'm not vaccinated. That person didn't have a mask on. So I just want to urge everybody, be really careful, because even though we're loosening up on mask requirements, not everybody has gotten vaccinated, and not everybody may be um, immune to COVID, and so you may just want to be a little extra careful. Good advice. Uh, I read recently that the FDA has authorized the use of another monoclonal antibody, and I'm, I'm going to try and pronounce it so, so trivimab. Um, it's probably not a good pronunciation, but is that something that you're familiar with at EE Health and something that you might use in the future? So I personally am not familiar with it, but I do know that we evaluate every single new treatment that comes out. And as soon as we know more about it, our physicians, we will get it. And when we can obtain it, we will use it. I know you've mentioned in the past that there are certain requirements to receive those type of treatments, the monoclonal antibody treatments. Can you give us a refresher on what patients would be eligible for those and when they might be most effective? Yes, it would be patients who are having symptoms that um, are somewhat severe, but not severe enough to be hospitalized, and who are within the first 10 days of their um, of getting having COVID symptoms. So anything after 10 days, it doesn't really help much, but up to the first 10 days, it can be given any time then. And anybody who's really at risk for, for the COVID getting worse because they, you know, maybe they have a, another illness they've got or um, their age, then they would encourage you if you have COVID to try to get the monoclonal antibodies, but try to do it before the first 10 days of the onset of the illness. So I was trying to think back to late last year, and I think it was sometime in December when the first employees at EE Health started to get their first vaccination of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so it's it's going on six months now, or it will be soon, that some of your employees have had uh, have been fully vaccinated. Does there does it appear that there's any uh, reduction in the effectiveness of the vaccine on any of those? folks that haven't had their vaccine in a while? So what we understand is that right now there's still no publications to say that there's going to be any concern about diminished uh, efficiency or effectiveness of the vaccine. So uh, we keep watching for more literature to show us if there's going to be a need to have a booster or if the vaccine is losing its effectiveness. But we have not seen any, and we're just constantly watching the situation um, because we really don't know what the future is going to be in terms of this. But, you know, some days we hear that might need to have a booster, and other days we hear, oh, it looks like it's going to maintain its efficiency and effectiveness. So we'll see. Has EE Health uh, begun giving vaccine to those patients who are under the age of 16 yet? Yes. So I think last time we talked, you asked me when we moved to just being at the Downers Grove site, which type of vaccine we were giving there. And I wasn't, I didn't remember which one we were giving, but it is the Pfizer. And I, I think I guessed it was Pfizer. And the reason why it is Pfizer is because Pfizer is the one that's approved for the 12 to 15 year old group. And so we have begun giving it to people 12 and older at, at the uh, Downers Grove site. And we, we anticipate there's gonna be a number of um, more kids wanting to come in for those vaccines, particularly as school is gonna be starting up, they're gonna wanna get that 
get signed up for that vaccine. So they can go on our website um, to get signed up if they're interested in that vaccine. And I know that, you know, 16 and 17 year olds have been eligible for a while. Does it appear that that group as a whole um, is eager to get vaccine? I think it's mixed just like adults. I mean, there's a lot that want to get their vaccine. I, uh, I just wondered if, you know, there were parents that were, you know, maybe getting it themselves, but a little nervous about their kids. So I, ho- I hope more will get vaccinated. It seems like, uh, you know, it's slowly getting approved for younger and younger folks. Do you do you have a feeling that, you know, much younger folks will eventually be approved, you know, like six, seven, eight-year-olds, or does it appear they're stopping at the 12-year-old? No, I have a feeling they'll go further, but I don't know for a fact. Uh, that would be my educated guess is that they will go further. Any uh, changes to the percentage of hospital employees who've been vaccinated? No, we're still at 72%. Can you give us an idea of some other diseases where hospital employees routinely would be required to be vaccinated? Yes, uh, we do require an annual flu vaccine for anybody who works in the health system. Uh, So if they choose not to get a vaccine, they can't continue working here unless they have a religious exemption or they have some kind of allergy to the vaccine, then then they can get um, an exemption and they can continue to work here. But if they just don't want the vaccine, they can't work here. The other vaccines that are required or immunizations that are required is we require at the time of hire proof of measles, mumps, rubella, and chickenpox. That's that MMBR or whatever? Measles, yep. mumps, or just MMR, measles, mumps, rubella? MMR. MMR. Yeah. I don't know where the B and came from. I made that up. <laughs> That's okay. I make up things too. <laughs> so once uh, once the, um, the uh, vaccines are approved permanently across the board, assuming that does happen, will hospitals likely require their staffs to get COVID vaccines, do you think? I, my educated guess would be yes. I think that as soon as it's not in a, uh, approved for emergency use authorization only, because right now that's what's stopping hospitals from requiring uh, vaccines, but um, once it is fully FDA approved, I would imagine most hospitals and long-term care facilities will look to make it a mandatory vaccination requirement. And the reason for that is because we have an obligation to decrease the risk for our patients coming into the building and for our other employees to keep them healthy. And so uh, everybody will be looking at it and making a decision on whether it's going to be required or not. Can you give us an update on vaccines that have been administered via EE Health? Happily. So the number of individuals receiving at least one dose of the vaccine is 55,777. The number of individuals being fully vaccinated is 51,937. And the total number of our employees that are vaccinated is 6,288. And I assume that supply right now is plentiful? We have ample vaccine supply for at least the next two weeks. Okay, and then I'm going to ask you one last time, and I'm going to, I, I promise I'm not going to ask you this in the near future. Is Johnson & Johnson on the horizon for EE Health? Do we know? Well, I am very happy that you asked me that question this time. Uh-oh. Because <laughs> we did begin offering the J&J vaccine at our lumbar immediate care, I think it was last week, and um, just 
So it's the one-time shot, J&J, at our Lombard Immediate Care, and you do not need an appointment. You can just walk into the immediate care, and you can get your vaccine. It's a vaccine visit only. It's not an immediate care visit, and it is uh, from Monday through Friday between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m., and Saturday and Sunday, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. And then um, I assume that Pfizer vaccine is still available at the Downers Grove vaccination site? Correct, but that one you do need an appointment. So if you want Pfizer, you need an appointment. Right now, Johnson & Johnson, you can go to Lombard Immediate Care and get it as a walk-in. That's awesome. Yes, and the reason why we need to do the appointments is because we need to be able to track for the second vaccine and make sure, you know, there's a lot more tracking around the Pfizer than there is the Johnson Johnson since that's a one-time dose. So you get to Johnson & Johnson and you walk out with your vaccination card all complete, right? Correct. All Very nice. done. Very nice. That that's my higher math skills kicking in. You're that's, a brilliant man. <laughs> not exactly, <laughs> but um, so we've talked from time to time about how during different parts of the pandemic, your elective procedures had been down and emergency room visits had been down. Can you kind of give us an idea now if we compare the last month or so, whatever period makes sense to you? how it compares to maybe two years ago. I can't compare it to a year ago because we were in the pandemic a year ago, but how, how do things look in terms of elective procedures? So if we look at all the elective procedures we did in April of 2019 and how many we did in April of 2021, we are exceeding 19 by 5%. Well, that sounds like good news. That is good news. I think a lot of that is people making up for not getting any elective surgeries during the pandemic. So there's pent up demand. And so we're just trying to get them in and get them out so that, you know, we can catch up and everybody can start feeling healthier again. Another subject I haven't asked about in a while, and that is virtual visits uh, with physicians. I know that was very popular early on during the pandemic. Does that still seem to be popular among a bunch of of either physicians or patients, and do you still think that that may continue for quite a while? Well, I think it's going to continue for quite a while because I think some people, it's just what they're going to want going forward, but uh, patients do continue to use our virtual visits, but not at the numbers that we saw during the height of the pandemic. But a lot of those virtual visits were forced by us because we weren't having people come in, and so with the choice, some want them and some do not. You know, when you do a virtual visit, there's different kinds. You can do it by phone. You can do it by video. The best kind is the video visit, so the doctor can actually look at you while and talk to you and kind of observe you as, as he's learning, he or she is learning more about your health care needs. And we believe that uh, in the future, people are still going to demand virtual visits because they don't want to spend the time coming into an office, having to park, waiting in a crowded waiting room. You know, so I think it's just the, the way the future is that there needs to be a lot of different options for people and, and they will, depending on what's wrong with them, there are some things that have to be in person to examine them, but those things that don't have to be in person, you know, they may choose to continue to use virtual visits and we will support that. So I think my favorite local annual fundraising event that I attend most every year is the Elmhurst Memorial Hospital Foundation's Chef Fest at Drury Lane, and it's just an outstanding time with 
it seems like nearly a thousand people. It's probably seven or eight hundred people, and maybe twenty five to thirty restaurants showing off their their great uh, food. And uh, we weren't able to have that this past year, I know. But there's going to be, I see, a summer chef fest that's not going to take place all at one venue. Can you describe how that's happening? Yeah, we're really excited to try something new, and we're trying to think of things differently than we have in the past. And I'm hoping next year we can have our normal chef fest because I, I agree with you. I think it's a lot of fun. I was involved from the very first one that was started with the Guild many, many, many years ago, and it was for supporting our psychiatric units. And, um, you know, I, I believe that the partnership between the, the different restaurants and our organization and helping to raise money to be able to support our hospital is really important. So this year, we're doing the Chef Fest Summer Edition. And how that summer edition is going to be is it's, it's a creative opportunity to support both the hospital and our local restaurants who, and we want, we, the hospital wants to support our local restaurants because they've been really impacted during this pandemic. So we're looking at how we can both get supported, but primarily wanting to get back to our restaurants who have given to us every year. So during the weeks of June 7th through the 10th and June 14th through the 17th, we are inviting the community to join in an eat and earn experience at a variety of restaurants within Elmhurst and the surrounding areas. So these participating restaurants agree to donate a portion of the sales back to Elmhurst Memorial Hospital Foundation. And, um, and then, you know, they also then have the dinner, so they have people coming into their restaurant as well, which supports the restaurant. You can do it either dine-in, carry-out, or delivery. And um, there is going to be a sponsorship and advertisement options available for anybody who would like that. The benefits have been enhanced to reflect the redesigned events. So there's going to be a game of chance drawing, which will be offered at $25 per chance to win great, some great packages. And so if you're interested or the community is interested to know more about this, you can go on our website, www.eehealth.org forward slash chef dash fest um, and on there you will see what restaurants are going to have confirmed that they are going to be involved with us and um, and you can plan your your dining pleasure for those two weeks so you can go out to eat lunch dinner every night for what is it 10 days 7 June 7th through the 10th and June 14th through the 17th um, and more restaurants will be added as we confirm. So if you don't see your favorite restaurant there today, maybe tomorrow it'll be up there. So that's just to um, repeat. It's eehealth.org forward slash chef dash fest. Got it. Thank you. Uh, that, that hopefully will uh, be somewhat as successful, if not more successful than the in-person chef fest. But I do look forward to uh, the old Chef Fest returning next year. So let's cross our fingers and hope that happens. Oh, I agree with you. But at least this will be something fun to try to do and support our local restaurants because we, we just have to thank them for supporting us all these years. And, you know, we want everybody's businesses to get back up and running. So if you can, maybe you've been putting off with planning a dinner date with somebody or a lunch date, some old friends, Try to do it during those two weeks so that you can support that restaurant and it also gives back to the hospital. 
Great advice. Thank you, as always, Pam, for spending some time with us today. And uh, I'm very encouraged by the uh, inpatient numbers decreasing as it relates to COVID patients. So thanks much. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right, nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.